Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 7th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Carbon tax will increase from the 1st of May. This was rubber stamped by the Dáil without a vote last night because not enough TDs were prepared to oppose the increase. So yes, coal, briquettes, petrol, diesel, gas and electricity will all go up in price because of government taxes from the 1st of next month. It's somewhat odd because there have been endless calls from opposition to postpone the increases but less than 10 TDs were set to oppose the budgets when it came to the crunch. Let's speak to Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath, Fergus O'Dowd. A very good morning to you Fergus O'Dowd and thank you indeed for joining us. I suppose we all understand why people are concerned about an increase in energy and fuel prices uh, but were you surprised that there was so little opposition in the doll? Well, um, I mean, Sinn Féin have their position and they're opposed to them, but last night they didn't oppose them, so we can only assume that they agree with the principle of carbon taxes, which means that effectively down the road that we save our planet, that we reduce our use of fossil fuels. But the very important issue, uh, which I want to make clear to all, all your listeners, is that notwithstanding the fact that the carbon tax will increase uh, there will be no increase for individuals. The government will be offsetting uh, this carbon tax increase and they will announce the mechanism by which they will do that next week. So notwithstanding the fact, and again I repeat, that the tax is there and it will increase, uh, it will not increase this time the cost of petrol or diesel. It will be gas and it will be kerosene and so on. Uh, and it, it is a small increase if you have money, if you've unemployed or whatever, if you're on social welfare, it's a lot of money. Uh, it's, 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 mm. it's basically um, going to be paid by this government at this time. Okay. So there will be no increase uh, in, because of the carbon tax. But I just want to make the mm. final point on this, Michael, that that won't necessarily stop, obviously, petrol going up if the price of petrol internationally goes up as a result of the war the price of diesel that's a separate a separate uh, issue so we quite often hear people talk about the government give it with one hand uh, and take it away with the other but you're saying that in this circumstance it's the opposite of that you're taking it away with one hand but you will be giving it back to people 
Well, I think that the mechanism isn't clear as I speak to you. We had a four-hour meeting in Fine Gael last night about this from half five mm. to half nine. Uh, practically everybody in the room spoke. Everybody expressed their concerns, uh, you know, in terms of the cost of living going up, yep. about the war in the Ukraine. Uh, but the clear decision will be that the tax will go up, but the government will pay it. What happened uh, in Fine Gael last night? Tell us uh, about this meeting, because there was well, a, um, the there was a motion... In years, you'd be glad they were <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have been very good if that was the case. But there was a motion every, every, put... Everybody spoke. OK, but there was a motion proposed by John Paul Field and Michael Ring and Paul Kyo, uh, and yeah. that would have postponed the increase in carbon tax until at least six months after the end of the war. It was to go to a vote. You just didn't vote. Why not? Well, because first of all, if you look at the question about the war, this war could end in six days, it could end in six months, it might go on for six years. So timing something to the end of a war, notwithstanding the genuineness of the, of the application people were making, or the statement they were making in their motion, just didn't make sense because you couldn't say when that would happen, sadly, very sadly so. But the principal issue about preventing a, a, a cost of living increase uh, by a tax increase by the government at this time. That was the key point. And people felt that we should not uh, increase the cost of living, even if we had to introduce a carbon tax, which is in our programme for government and, and which is part of the legislation that we're supporting. Uh, so the mechanism, as I said, it has to be announced, but it will be announced next week. The finance minister made it clear that that will happen also. Uh, so I, I think it was a very important debate, Michael, because everybody, everybody is concerned about the cost of living. Nobody knows how much things are going to go up. I mean, the issue uh, about the Ukraine supplying grain and so on, the cost of energy internationally. So we're in a real real very difficult crisis for everybody right across the world actually mm. right now and we could hopefully we're not ending into uh, sorry going into a recession um you know but we we have a, 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 a sorry a forecast there yesterday i think it was from dsri saying that you know that our our, our income i think would probably for every for every 100 euros you have to spend this year, uh, last year rather, you'll have 99 this year. So people's income will be reducing. It will be, and we can't control that, unfortunately. Well, households are expected to be down between two and 3,000 euro over the course of uh, the year. Now, you've been told, your parliamentary party meeting was told last night that the increase in carbon tax will be offset somehow. Is that why there wasn't a vote uh, on the basis of that promise? Well, we all agreed. We all agreed that that was an acceptable sure. solution at this stage. Ha, ha, nobody wanted the cost of living to go up okay. as a result of, of the tax, and this is the way to deal with it. And, and that has to that has to be ironed out. It has to be worked out. It will be ironed out. Yeah, we were told that that mm. we'll have a decision on the mechanism uh, mm. next week. So, and will it be offset for everybody, or will it be offset it, for well, social well, welfare well, recipients and pensioners? No, the view of the party was that it should be offset for everybody because everybody faces significant and increasing difficulties and unknown increases into the future. Okay, yeah. uh, and you, you've no idea uh, of what 
mechanism can achieve that? We don't actually, no we don't, we don't but we, we were told that it is being discussed and obviously uh, there's a cabinet meeting I understand next Wednesday and uh, I, look I'm not party to mm. those discussions I know you understand that Michael. No I am, uh, yeah, of course uh, yeah, yeah. But, but we're talking about what, 150 a month, 140, 150 a, a month extra uh, expected uh, as a result of the carbon tax, so is everybody in the country going to get an extra 140, 150 a month uh, as a result of whatever? I can't answer that Michael, other than, other than that that we'll have an an I'll have an answer for you next week and there'll be absolute clarity on it. It's a very difficult situation for everybody um, and we all accept that and at the same time uh, we have to accept that the climate is changing uh, and that you know there are huge mm. huge problems coming in terms of food production in terms of look we all know what's happening um, you know global warming is, is, is upon us and that's why the other thing about this carbon tax uh, that the income from it is ring fenced in other words it's not going uh, you know to, to it's ring fenced to you know the, the refitting yeah. uh, our homes and to make them more energy efficient so the use of the tax is very constructive and productive for households and something like 80% of the cost of insulating your attic mm. will be paid by the government. So uh, the, the government has pledged a billion euro, hasn't it, to yes, retrofitting. Yeah. So, so, so where is the 150 per person going to come from? Is that going to come well, from... It's going to, co it's going to come, obviously, from, from a government decision. I, I know, but you know what I mean. So something has to suffer. Uh, if uh, obviously, ob obviously something has to suffer. Uh, but like the clarity, the clarity is in the decision that mm. your oil will not be going up. You know, your gas mm. will not be going up. That doesn't mean there won't be an increase in the price of petrol because of the international situation, which has nothing to do with the carbon tax. Mm. So I'm just being very honest with you. Yeah, on that but point. but but that but that's very good news for government. Government is laughing all the way to the bank. Government is in the money because every time the cost of petrol or anything else for that matter goes up, the government takes in more money by way of taxes, whether that's VAT or excise duties, yeah, as uh, the no. case may be. Uh, what about bringing down the cost of of petrol or whatever else. Well, that, that, that's a very important point, Michael, and that was made very strongly last night as well. The difficulty with the law in this is that because we're part of the European Union, uh, we, have a, we have a concession in our VAT rate. And if we reduce our VAT rate from, the, I think it's about 13.5% mm. on, on diesel and oil and so on, if we reduce that, we can do that. Mm. But the problem is... It goes back up we, to 23%. We have to put it back up to 25 23%. Yeah. Mm. So you might be shooting yourself in the foot. I understand that. But the yeah. Taoiseach told the doll last week, I think, that uh, the government had sought a, a derogation from uh, the European Union, uh, which would prevent it going back up to 23%. That, that is correct, and that's, that hasn't been decided yet. And just to be very straight with you about this, this was discussed last night, and the Minister for Finance says it's a very complex matter. One of the reasons is that uh, different European countries have have other rates as along with ourselves, mm, yeah. and they're trying to resolve that. But clearly, clearly, and I made this point very strongly, is that because of the crisis in the Ukraine, I think the European Union must come uh, must come to the rescue for all of the European economies in relation to this huge uh, evil that the war is mm. causing, but also the increase in the cost of living for everybody. And it's not just shortages now. I mean, they're mm. talking, like if you look at what's happening in Germany, they could very well have their, they, they may have no energy at all, that their gas mm. could be cut off very well, shortly. We, and if that is the case, uh, we'd, yeah. 
you're obliged to supply them with gas because we've a secure well, supply. Crisis, Michael. It's, it's, it's really mm. like we're in a war economy now in one sense. I know mm. we're not part of that war literally, but this war is changing things possibly even forever in terms of, you know, it's going to create an increasing demand for alternate energy resources so that we won't be relying on places like Russia or anybody else eh, that we can produce our own energy from the wind or the sea or whatever. Mm. In, what, um, 20, 30 years and use fracked grass in between? Uh, well, absolutely. We have to use whatever we can. Mm. But if you can't heat your homes or if the lights go off, you want to know why. Mm. And uh, and we have to make sure that we're as independent as possible of external forces uh, in relation to energy. And that's why we need to invest in alternative energy into renewables. Mm. That's why we need infrastructure uh, that you know to, to to do that. That's why we need our, our windmills and so on. Mm. Uh, and that's 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 where we have to. Okay, put but our give, give, on give, our give, given the crisis situation that so many people don't. find themselves in, and how difficult uh, they're finding it to get from one end of the week uh, to the next and how the motion was put to the party last night by John Paul Field and Michael Ring and Paul Keogh to postpone the increase in carbon tax. Do you think that those three TDs or others were all happy at the end of the meeting? Uh, I would say yes, we all expressed. Yeah. I think the, the most important thing, there was no rancour, there was no personal uh, you know, as you know things can get quite a bit like your show, Michael, can get hot and heavy at times. Uh, the, the reality was that it was a very long meeting hmm. everybody spoke and everybody everybody was satisfied that they were heard and the the tarnished made it very clear that he heard everything we said and the other thing that came out of the meeting was that obviously clearly you mentioned they're using all alternative or gas coming from America or whatever yeah, yeah. or frack gas yeah. or whatever yeah, the issue now has to be that Finnegar will have to and will be producing its own energy policy and there are strong views obviously in the West of Ireland about uh, using, you know, Shannon, down off the Shannon Estuary, you know, for uh, liquefied gas and so on. So Finnegar will have a clear position, which would be different, obviously, to the government position on all of these things. And also, the strong point was made that if you live in a rural community outside of town, that you have to have a car, you know, you have to, you know, it's, it's far more expensive for the rural dweller to, to drive a car or to live in the rural countryside um, and, and that we have to acknowledge that and we have to we have to have a policy that addresses those issues mm. in a practical way so I think that's the other outcome Okay, from, from last uh, apparently uh, there were uh, mixed opinions at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party and there were two separate motions, one in favour of uh, bringing in the carbon tax and one in favour of postponing it. Uh, the carbon tax is uh, going to increase from the 1st of of May. These measures that uh, you spoke uh, about, you don't know the detail or how it's going to work uh, as yet and uh, and that's fair enough. Uh, but were you told that we would know before the increase in the yes. carbon taxes? Yes, Michael, absolutely. That was a very key point. That is a very key point. Yes, absolutely. We will actually know next week. We'll know, I believe, next Wednesday. That's, that's my belief. Um, the cabinet meeting, I understand, will be on Wednesday, and it, you know we were we were we were going to have a special meeting of the parliamentary party meeting. Mm-hmm. Of the Parliament Party, it could be next Wednesday, but it wasn't actually fixed as such. But it was agreed that we would have one. Um, uh, it could be ne- hopefully it'll be next week. But mm. this decision will be will be made and will be will benefit. What we're told, everybody everybody will will 
benefit from it and it will be obviously it won't be a major it, it'll be important but like it you know it, it'll make sure that the carbon tax uh, will increase but we won't be paying it yeah. uh, through this direct method at the point of sale yeah our, our nerve steady in the party uh, because of all of the issues that we've been discussing and related issues uh, the war itself I mean we could be out of uh, gas or oil or, or whatever there could be rationing uh, there certainly is the real prospect of huge price increases whatever about 140 a month in carbon tax it looks like uh, we're not going to have anywhere for what 10,000 people to stay by the end of the month uh, and more people coming on top of that well, this is a huge issue because there, there, sure, if there are no, if there's no accommodation, the issue then has to rise. You know, can we take any more than, you know, once once the glass is full, you can't put any more water into it. I, I'm not saying that in a rude sense, Michael. Just as an analogy, if there's no more, if there's no more publicly available resources to to, to house these refugees who need support and services, uh, you know what 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 can we do? So one of the points were made was that uh, there may be there may be uh, for people who have holiday homes there may be incentives offered uh, to, to you know to, to lease them uh, that that's one option that may be considered. They're also looking at places like Cornstown Camp uh, where the, where the mice you know why people might be staying there for longer than was initially anticipated. Uh, but like the government is using all its resources to assist and help, but it is finite, mm. you know, and there will mm. be the, the, my view there has to be you know, there has to be a limit to it you know like we we can only take as many as we can take whatever that number is I don't know okay uh, that it looks like been very generous it well. looks like it could be as many as 200,000 uh, how will cope is another day's work we won't, for be able to, we won't be able to take that number Michael I don't believe we can like I mean if, if people are taking uh, very kindly and very mm. generously taking uh, you know two thirds of, 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 of the refugees are women I think one mm. third of them are children and well, that said, you can't have women and children sleeping in tents in a field, no, uh, and that's what's being that's what's being proposed in Gormanston. Uh, and half of the twenty thousand offers uh, from private uh, property owners yeah. uh, are inappropriate. Uh, yeah, we're looking at already at ten thousand people uh, with nowhere to go, uh, and that's what uh, twenty thirty thousand, uh, and we're talking about at least a hundred thousand, most likely, uh, uh, and that could increase then to two hundred thousand. Uh, there's I real challenges. That will happen, Michael. Mm. I can't see it happening. If yeah. we can't, if we can't accommodate thirty thousand, there's no way we can accommodate a hundred thousand. Yeah, you know that's that's the reality. Uh, the, the reality is, uh, ten million people have been displaced in the Ukraine. Now there are forty million people. Mm living there and God knows what those Russians are going to do now because they yeah. seem to be gearing up to to drive a lot more you know a lot more evil you know and deaths and God mm. knows what out there so like it's, 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 it's we, the whole it's world has changed Michael yep. and we, mm. we, we, we can you know, can only stretch you can only stretch you know the, the economy so far you can only mm. there is a limit but we will go to that limit but we're not we can't go beyond that okay and I suppose that's the question where is the line Fergus, I have to leave there, but thank you indeed. Thank you, thank thank you very much, as always. Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegale TD for Loud and Dee Smeath. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. LMFM.
Independent TD for Louth and East Mead, Peter Fitzpatrick, is making front page news today under the headline of Nowhere for 10,000 Refugees to Stay by the End of the Month, Cabinet Told in Secret Briefing. That's uh, the front page headline on the Irish Independent, which then quotes Peter Fitzpatrick. Indeed, all of uh, the papers, I think, this morning are quoting Peter Fitzpatrick uh, and some of uh, the statements he made in the Dáil yesterday about refugees coming to this country. We'll hear why in a moment but before we do let's hear some of what the Taoiseach Michal Martin had to say to the President of Ukraine after he made his address to the Dáil yesterday this is what Michal Martin had to say to Vladimir Zelensky Ireland is resolute in our solidarity and support for Ukraine President Zelensky we thank you for your heartfelt your honest clear and indeed historic address to our Parliament uh, this morning The strength of your commitment, President Zelensky, and that of the people of Ukraine to your country and to restoring it as a place, free, safe, a democratic and an independent country within the community of nations is both humbling and uplifting. We heard grave testimony from you this morning and we've seen ourselves the most shocking and harrowing of images from Busha, from Irpin, from Mariupol and from across Ukraine. Russia will have to live with the shame and ignominy of what they have done in Ukraine for generations. Those responsible will be held to account. We are with Ukraine and I am certain that in the end Ukraine will prevail. And the Taoiseach told the President about the great response to the humanitarian crisis from the Irish people. It is no surprise to me that the Irish people have stood up to be counted in an unprecedented way in response. Over 18,000 Ukrainian people have arrived in Ireland. Dedicated reception facilities are in place to provide temporary protection and access to other services immediately on arrival. We are providing accommodation to those who have sought it and we are ramping up our efforts to meet the very challenging and increasing demands. We are also working to ensure that other supports are available to people arriving here, including access to health, social care, services and education. New arrivals are also being registered to ensure that they can access income supports as needed. The heartfelt response of people across Ireland is clear and the whole range of initiatives at community level. I would like to thank all of the people who have opened their hearts and in some cases their homes to people from Ukraine. Michal Martin wanted to be sure that Vladimir Zelensky understood exactly what was being said. We stand with Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. That's the Taoiseach. Now to those comments from Peter Fitzpatrick. That's making front page news and news in all of the papers today. When they called care for support, the Irish people in their thousands answered. In many cases, they even travelled to the airport to collect the Ukrainian refugees who fled. But over the past number of weeks, I have many calls and visits from the families who talk to the Ukrainian refugees and they have outlined to me the difficulties they have faced. Now it is important to put on record that those people have not for one minute regretted their decision to take in the Ukrainian refugees and if they had to do it again, they would not hesitate in doing so. The issue that they are having is that they feel they are now isolated with no support. They have very little, if any, contact from the relevant uh, government departments. They feel they have, no, they have nobody to go to for support and advice. And as I said, they have absolutely no regrets in opening their homes to the Ukrainian refugees. 
but they are finding it difficult and financially challenging. They have increased energy and food bills, and on top of this, they have massive hikes in energy prices. Yet, when they, talk, when, when they look for support and assistance from the departments, they feel they're being ignored. The commercial hotels and the bed and breakfasts are getting paid to house Ukrainians, refugees, and the people who opened their homes to the same refugees are not getting any support. This is wrong, Taoiseach, and must be addressed. It is wrong that these people are left isolated without any support or assistance. They were good enough to open their homes at a time of great need, but now they feel ignored. They are, they are looking for support from the various government departments and getting no response. We all listened to President Zelensky this morning where he outlined the support that Ukrainians need right now. We all need to continue the Ukrainian people in time of great need, but Taoiseach, we need to also support the Irish people who have been good enough to open their homes and in many instances have great sacrifices made upon them themselves and their families. It is simply not fair that these people receive absolutely no support while hotels and B&Bs are receiving full support for taking the refugees. Taoiseach, I imagine you today to assist this issue and get the proper support to the many thousands of Irish people and families who have opened their homes to the Ukrainian refugees. Peter Fitzpatrick went on to remind Michal Martin about what he said to Vladimir Zelensky. Taoiseach, this morning you told the Ukrainian uh, president that our homes are your homes. Thousands of Irish people have opened their homes to the Ukrainian refugees and I believe this is the right place for them to be. It's a family atmosphere. Uh, the Irish people have always put their shoulder to the wheel when needed, and that's, that's what they're doing at the moment. Taoiseach, like, the Irish people are not giving out. In fairness, they, as I said to you, they do it again and again and again, but they're getting absolutely no support. Bills are coming in, like you know yourself, the ESB, uh, electricity bill, all kind of bills are coming in. And these families are actually picking up their children, the, the Ukrainian children, dropping them to school every day, and, everything, and they're looking for absolutely nothing. But you know, things at the moment, everything is increasing, increasing, increasing. And all they're asking for is your government to help them the way they help the Ukrainian refugees. People, he said, want to help. They're trying to help, but they're under pressure trying to help. You cannot put a price in family atmosphere. Uh, these families, they're not, looking for, they're not looking for profit. They're simply looking for support for extra costs that have incurred. Taoiseach, I, I do appreciate your, your, your reply, but you never once mentioned the people. Like These people that went up to the Dublin airport, they collected these families, they talked them back in good faith, and now they realise that there's a, there's a serious cause here. A lot of these families have, have children and family of their own, and with ESB bills, electricity bills, all these bills going up, Taoiseach, all they're doing is looking for a bit of help. Like, the, the, the government is quick enough to pay the hotels, they're quick enough to pay the B&Bs. And I said, they're not, they're not looking for profit. Not looking for profit, he said, and they're doing this with the very best of will. But Taoiseach, listen, there's a good will, and Ireland has been, has been good. You said to the President this morning, our home is your home. And, and these, these families are saying, our homes are the refugees' homes. But now all of a sudden, teachers, they thought maybe this, this war was going to last maybe four or five weeks. Now all of a sudden, this might go on for two more weeks or six weeks. The families don't know. And I said, not one family who came to me said they would change their mind. But teachers, please, they need help. They can't afford to pay the bills. And the last thing they want to do is have a conflict between them. Because Ireland is doing very well with Ukraine. Please don't put a damper on it. Peter Fitzpatrick there, the Taoiseach, said the government will continue to pay hotel bills, bills for bed and breakfasts and so on. Uh, but there was no indication from uh, the government uh, that there will be money given to people who take in refugees themselves. Can uh, talk at greater length with the deputy in terms of these experiences and so on and the people he has spoken to. Uh, but I do believe that in the initial sense, the people who drove to the airport did that out of the goodness of their heart. I've no doubt about that. And uh, are anxious to help uh, in the first instance. And I think we have to make it very clear 
that the reason all of this has been done is to deny Putin any sense that the West is under pressure. Because unfortunately in modern wars, the likes of Putin count on hybrid warfare on creating as much pressure through migration as they possibly can. Taoiseach Michal Martin responding to Peter Fitzpatrick in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, over 65s and immunocompromised people over the age of 12 are to get a second booster dose of COVID-19. That should be available from the autumn. But the Irish Times is reporting today that the European Centre for Disease Control and the European Medicines Agency have concluded that it is too early to administer a second booster dose of a COVID-19 vaccine for the general population, but added that an extra dose may be given to those over age 80. Let's speak uh, to Dr. Alona Duffy, who's a GP based in Monaghan and the medical director of NE Doc. Good morning to you, Dr. Duffy, and thank you indeed for joining us. It seems as though there's conflicting opinions there. Well, I suppose we've had conflicting opinions at different times with regard to some of the evidence. And um, while in the majority of cases we have followed the European Disease Centre of Control and the European Medicines Agency with regards to all advice to do with the vaccinations, we have at different times uh, kind of done our own thing. And I suppose sometimes that's also followed what's happening in other countries too. So um, it's not necessary that we're a complete, complete outlier on this. Okay. And it seems that vaccine protection is waning. This seems to be the experience uh, that is being recorded uh, from Israel. Exactly. Israel, as we know, we're well ahead of the posse with regards to initial rollout of vaccines and had a very organised approach vaccinating through the night and people really took up on the offer of vaccine and there was nearly an enforcement of it. So I suppose because of that, we saw early on them being vaccinated, seeing how that protection um, offered was offered against COVID at the time, was also how it worked against different variants and also they saw how it waned. So they were able to see that ahead of us because we were that little bit slower in rolling out our vaccines. So again, we know in other countries such as the UK, they are already starting to offer a fourth vaccine to Mm. people. And again, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about giving it to the more at-risk people. And while the EDC are kind of suggesting that it should be only for the over 85s, um, it is being offered to those over 65 here, as you rightly said. And would you encourage people over 65 or anyone over 12 who's immunocompromised to get this booster booster, this fourth jab? Um, I would because I suppose even on the ground we're kind of starting to see people who have been that bit sicker even with this latest variant um, kind of that kind of people were saying oh it's milder it's milder and it was milder because really everybody was vaccinated but those people who weren't vaccinated are number one they're the people we're seeing who are sicker um, with the symptoms some of them requiring hospitalisation which we hadn't seen for many many months and number two they tend to be the people who are having longer COVID symptoms so a month later they're still feeling unwell now saying that people who are vaccinated are also complaining of that but definitely their symptoms are milder than those who are unvaccinated or or uncompletely vaccinated. Mm. So for that reason we always knew that the vaccine would potentially start to wane given especially how easily this virus seems to mutate and therefore we want to maximise people's um, protection. And we're hearing from people who are fully vaccinated who've had three jabs who get COVID and are on their back Uh, and we know from the figures that there's people who are fully vaccinated who are in hospital. Uh, Is it that they'd be much sicker had they not been vaccinated? Without a doubt they'd be much sicker and I think we can't forget two years ago 
when really people were just dying in their, in their vast numbers, people in nursing homes, mainly those who were older and those who were immunocompromised. And we never want to go back to that. And really, that's what the vaccines have protected us against. OK. And is it going to be a regular thing? I mean, that's, uh, I suppose, the most obvious question. If we need a, a fourth jab, will there be a fifth and a sixth and so on? I think we're going to learn as we go. And again, all of that evidence and data is being gathered. So I can't see it happening that we're going to all have vaccinations twice a year. I don't see that that's going to be feasible. And I don't think that it'll probably be as cost effective. But perhaps those people who are vulnerable will will be having the vaccine once a year. But again, I think an awful lot is going to depend on how many further variants we have. Does this virus die out? Do we find that we're getting more and more kind of variants, but they're milder in nature? And it returns to an ordinary kind of corona type cold-like virus. And remember, the, the common cold is a form of a coronavirus. So we may see that. But again, look, we don't mm. know. I think we've been surprised, unfortunately, surprised a lot by this um, COVID virus. And when it all started, we all really thought that within six months it would be over. And here we are two years later. Time will tell. And it could very well be that somebody will ask here, you're not feeling when you say, ah, it's just a, a touch of COVID and <laughs> nothing to worry about. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, do you think that it, it, it could be a thing where at the moment, you have people over 65 who are vulnerable to severe illness if uh, they catch it, and that that could stagger out over a period of time as vaccines start to wane and that we could see over 55s uh, maybe going into the winter needing a, a booster booster, a fourth jab. I think we're going to have to wait and see. And I mean, we ha- it hasn't even been discussed with us as GPs who's going to be providing these vaccines. I mean, as you know, previously the over 65s received their vaccines through their GPs. But none of that's been discussed with us. And I think GPs are so busy at the moment. And as everybody out there listening knows, it's so hard to get to see your doctor at the moment because we're mm. just overwhelmed with the amount of work we're doing that to start taking on vaccines again, I think would be very difficult. So I would hope that this will be rolled out through the vaccine centres that are open and running still. Mm. OK, there's a, a very obvious message, I think, for people in all of this, or a message that I, I think should be obvious and may not be obvious. Uh, but if some people are going to need a, a fourth vaccine, Uh, Well, people who don't have their third vaccine should be thinking uh, what they're doing and maybe reconsider and seek out uh, a vaccination. Absolutely. We've got to ensure that those who aren't vaccinated get that vaccine to protect themselves. And again, some people may be reluctant to do it and may be thinking, well, I don't need to. And look, at hospitalisation figures aren't that high and ICU figures aren't that high. They're not that high because the majority of people are vaccinated and especially those who are at risk. But if you're one of those people who hasn't completed your vaccine programme, then go get the vaccine. You can register online. You can get it done in one of the HSC centres. And I think that's why we're not seeing the high hospital figures, because people are vaccinated. Dr Duffy, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Dr Alona Duffy, who's a GP based in Monaghan and the medical director of NEDOC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Seamus is in the dock. Seamus says, I believe it, or I will believe it when I see it, that we won't end up paying more because of the carbon tax increase. Uh, we've been hearing uh, that those increases will be offset through some mechanism, which has yet to be announced, but we'll be getting the details of uh, that next week. Seamus says, I'll believe it when I see it. He says, now is not the time. Uh, we're already feeling the pinch of anything. The government should be looking at reducing the price of energy and give us more than €200. Euro 
euro towards our electricity bills. The bills are going through the roof, he says. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Seamus. Anna also calling us today. Anna is in Drogheda. She says that she admires everyone who's offered to take in Ukrainian refugees, but she says there should be more support or some support, as not everyone can afford to take people in, but they would if they got some sort of financial assistance. These poor people deserve to be in homes, mixing with other families and communities, rather than in hotels or tents, as the case may be. Thanks, Anna. Pete uh, in touch with us about that too. He says, I don't often agree with Peter Fitzpatrick, but on this I do. If it's good enough for hotels and B&Bs to get government help for putting up Ukrainian refugees, beg your pardon, Ukrainian refugees, why is it not the same for those people who, out of the goodness of their hearts, are are taking people in? Uh, Should they not be given some credit off their energy bills like gas, electric and oil? No one is asking for money, but a little help would suffice. Maybe the hotels and B&B owners are either government members or close friends of politicians. The people in the euphoria of helping the refugees have been sold up up. Their energy costs will go through the roof and the refugees are in their homes now and they'll be there until the war is over, says Pete. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us as well. Tony in County Louth in touch with us about this too and he says that uh, just to remark on the excellent and informative interview with Fergus O'Dowd earlier and for the first time I've heard a politician accept the realisation that numbers being talked about are just not possible. As I alluded Alluded to in a text to yourself recently, sympathy and good intentions do not build houses, hospitals and schools, and you cannot stack human beings on top of one another. No one questions the genuine uh, need that people are in, but the answer has to be more countries better able to cope, taking more, even if that means as far away as the United States, says Tony in Louth. And says, surely the Ukrainians who are taken in by families and who are getting all of the benefits from the state will be able to help with household expenses. Uh, Clare and County Mead says, can you ask our government ministers why they're giving themselves a big pay rise uh, instead of uh, putting it into these issues that ordinary people are facing? Anne says, speaking of ordinary issues, Anne says, a bale of briquettes will cost 7.60. Don't know how old age pensioners are going to heat their homes. Thanks uh, indeed if you have been in touch. If you haven't been in touch, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Now, uh, if uh, you have uh, been recently bereaved and had to deal with somebody or care for somebody who was going through palliative care, uh, you may be interested in our next item. Indeed, if you're a carer or a former carer of somebody uh, who had palliative care needs or if you just have an interest in palliative care uh, you may be interested in our next item for that matter. Uh, Karen Charnley is uh, the Director of the All-Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care the AIIHPC and she joins us on the line now to talk about Voices for Care. Good morning to you uh, and thank you indeed Karen for joining us on the programme. You're, you're looking for people who have experience or a, a real interest in palliative care to join this uh, initiative which you call Voices for Care. Tell us a little bit more if you would please. So Voices for Care was established in 2013 and it was set up to learn from people's personal experiences of palliative care and to inform and influence palliative care on the island of Ireland. Um, so here, the work of our volunteers, who are Voices for Care members, uh, they guide work of um, and inform the work of both the Institute and our key um 
partners, which include policymakers, hospices, researchers and educators. And they've all greatly benefited from the insights and experiences of Voices for Care members. Okay, so uh, you're looking for their knowledge, really, aren't you? Because, uh, I mean, if you've cared for somebody uh, who needed palliative care, you become kind of expert in quite a a lot of issues, including the medication and the care for people in that situation. You quite often people uh, hear people uh, as well comment on the services available and how things might be better uh, or how they uh, were so good, uh, thankfully, for one thing or another that was available to them. And that's the kind of experience that you'd like to hear from from people, I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely an opportunity for people to make a real difference and to bring their own voice and experience um, to, for example, uh, informing the development of education programmes, research projects, advising researchers about, um, like you say, uh, their experience of um, uh, maybe different drugs or different medications and um, different mm. treatments, for example, involve, uh, informing policymakers. And even with the work of ourselves here in the Institute, we have an annual Palliative Care Week, which is the 11th to the 17th of September this year. And uh, our Voices for Care members are key to informing us about the messaging about the, uh, around mm. the week and things that we should be thinking of and doing. Is that it's really that uh, people's experiences that... Yeah. Um, and you can't buy that experience because yeah. pe- pe- people tell you you don't understand until you're there uh, and dealing with it firsthand uh, and the consequences that one action will have uh, and uh, uh, that that action might have consequences on something else uh, for that matter. Uh, and... I wish I could tell somebody, I wish somebody would listen to me and this is an opportunity to do that, uh, to become a Voices for Care members and you can influence how other people will be cared for in the future. Uh, But you are looking for a a significant commitment from people. This isn't a a wishy-washy off the top of your head type of uh, thing that you're looking for from people. Well, uh, our members are volunteers and we're very conscious of that, so Mm. they're volunteering their time. But we look to have... um, around two meetings a year face-to-face. We also have online meetings. Uh, We also send our members, uh, you know, items by email that we ask them to comment on. But what really, though, what I would, to assure you listeners, uh, is that people can pick and choose which things they're involved in. We don't expect members to get involved in anything. And we understand that It's not not a full-time job that you're at. But but, but you're 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 asking people to sign up for a couple of years, though, at the same time, I think. Yeah, we're asking Mm -hmm. people. But look, we understand that people's situations uh, change. And also, it may be for a time that they can't um, be, you know, during the period that they can't be as actively involved. But then maybe the situation will change and they can. So we understand um, and we don't expect people to be involved in every opportunity. Okay. is it good psychologically for people uh, who've uh, cared uh, for a loved one uh, who's passed uh, to get involved for uh, with, with something like this? Uh, does, do, does it help them uh, in their healing process or uh, can it bring them backwards, if you understand what I mean? What I would say is that we are, we're always here as an organisation to provide support to our members and we look to mind them uh, through the volunteering. But the feedback we've had from a lot of our Voices for Care m- uh, members is how positive an experience they've found it. Um, 
you know, because it's done in a supportive way and, and we're always here for them. So um, I suppose we're very mindful that we're not looking to um, upset our members uh, when they're um, engaging in things as mm, well. I, I understand. Uh, but you will hear people say, um, you know, there comes a time when you have to move on. Uh, does this help you to move on or does it hold you back? No, we would hope that it helps people with that process of, um, you know, dealing with what they've... um, Mm. um, And very much that this is a positive way in which people can use their experiences to inform uh, the future development of, say, palliative care services Mm. and research and education. So it's using those experiences, um, you know, um, yeah, with a positive aim. It's not not a trick question, Karen. I'm asking you that genuinely because I think it's a... I think it's a question, though, that people will ask themselves. You know, they've been through a, a lot uh, and they've uh, obviously uh, a, a lot of grief and hurt and things to deal with uh, and then may think, well, am I filling my mind up with this stuff for the next couple of years and preventing myself from moving on? Uh, but I think what you're saying is uh, that the understanding and the experience and sharing the experience and helping other people will help them to do that, is it? Yes, for sure. And and that just to assure uh, your listeners is that with you know, here within the All Island Institute, um, that we're there to support them and to provide you know, so if they're getting involved in research that that will provide some training and support around that, for example. And um, you know, if there was something that they were finding upsetting that we'll be there to support them with it. But look the the vast majority well the feedback we've received from members and we're constantly seeking that feedback is that they found it to be very positive so okay. I suppose we're mindful of it but yeah. uh, the, the experiences to date have been positive I understand completely there's a, an awful lot of people listening uh, to us uh, who will fit the criteria if you like for the kind of people who you're listening to it's a, an unfortunate reality of life that many of us uh, go through uh, losing somebody uh, who received palliative care and they're exactly I suppose the type of people you're reaching out to today Uh, if they wish to get involved in Voices for Care uh, they have to make themselves known to you before the 9th of May I think is it? Yes yeah, so we're interested in hearing from people with a life-limiting condition. So that may be people with advanced cancer, heart disease, lung disease, renal, neurological conditions. We're also keen to hear from carers and former carers of people with life-limiting conditions and any and any citizens, any people with an interest in palliative care. Uh, and we'd ask that they be aged 18 or over. If people want to hear more, um, the closing date is the 9th of May, but if people want to hear more, uh, our website is www.aihpc.org, which is uh, aihpc.org, or you can search Voices and the number for care, Voices for Care in Google, and we come up at the top, or call call my colleague Martina on 01. 491-2948 491-2948 that's 01-491-2948 and we'll send you across the information Very good okay well we have all of those details here at the radio station uh, as well if uh, people uh, didn't uh, get uh, the chance uh, to write them down uh, but we can uh, make that information available to people if uh, they are uh, looking to get in touch with you the uh, address uh, the website address is AII. HPC, that's All Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, AIIHPC.org. Thank you indeed, Karen, for joining Thank us. You so this much, morning. Mike. Thank you. That's uh, Karen Charnley, who's uh, the director of the All Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, AIIHPC. 
HPC. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Ireland's recent research identified a skills shortage of 40,000 people within tourism and hospitality. There is a glaring and immediate need for oversight of the training and development within the tourism and hospitality sector. A shortage of 40,000 staff. It really is incredible, isn't it? That, by the way, is Adrian Cummins, who is uh, Chief Executive of the Irish Restaurants Association. He, he was speaking uh, to the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism yesterday uh, and highlighting some of the problems that the industry faces because of a, a result of a shortage of 40,000 staff. We're currently in a crisis with regards to the shortage of skilled staff for hospitality and tourism in Ireland. In fact, the crisis started in 2012 when the Restaurants Association of Ireland flagged with the relevant government departments in Fault Ireland at the time that we were facing a shortage of specifically chefs, but now across all parts of the industry. Let's talk to Mark McGowan of Scholars Town House Hotel and Peggy Moore's Pub in Drogheda. Mark is the president of the Restaurants Association of Ireland and was also giving evidence to that Oireachtas Committee yesterday. Good morning to you, Mark, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Staff shortages across the board, a crisis situation. Is it really that bad? Really is that bad, Michael. Unfortunately, we're we're looking at a very uh, bleak summer ahead because where we know we'll have an influx of uh, visitors up into the northeast, and unfortunately we're not going to have the staff to be able to facilitate that. Um, we're managing just about all right, but that doesn't reflect nationwide. Um, a lot of businesses unfortunately have to close their doors one to two days a week in order to facilitate time off for their, their senior managers and staff, etc. So it's very, very difficult. As you heard Adrian saying there before, um, we did flag this, um, you know, 10 years ago now at this stage, and um, it, it's no different. Um, the pandemic obviously exasperated the situation and made things that little bit worse for us. But um, unfortunately, that's the position we're in now. So you have these staff shortages uh, before you talk about people being out sick or uh, with COVID and isolating, uh, whether they're sick or not. Yeah, it's, that's still there, obviously. And some, some uh, staff has reports of uh, long COVID as well, which is causing all kinds of problems. So, um, yeah, COVID is having, having, still having a big issue for us. But more importantly, the skill shortages is rife. It's, it's becoming um, a real crisis for us. And what we need is um, qualified and veteran staff kind of there now to be able to take on the, the workload. It's grand bringing people in and training them up is what we're doing. I mean, last summer, the industry was held together by uh, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And um, we're, we're, we owe them a debt of gratitude, really, for, for what they did last summer. They really did hold the industry together for us. And if you're looking at kitchens, with kitchen porters that we're training up in-house and, and that's just not my business that's right across the country again and they're, we're turning these guys into chefs so we're doing everything we can our end we're just looking for a little bit more help now from government trying to speed up the process and obviously uh, look at uh, going further afield to try and uh, bring people in and speed up the applications for our work permits mm. about 22 weeks now at the minute we want to get that down to about six weeks if we can and speed up that process and that might just um, you know fill a gap and is it that there aren't there there isn't enough Irish people looking for the jobs or that the Irish people who look for the jobs aren't skilled enough well what's actually happened is that there, um, there's not enough there's not enough looking for for the jobs at the moment they're getting out of the industry I've had chefs 
it's, it's a difficult industry, no doubt, but what, what there is is passionate people still around the place. But every time we lose one, um, it raises the, the, the price of chefs, I suppose, because there's more demand. So what's happening at the minute is there's a, a wage inflation uh, scenario, and it's, I mean, the, the cost of doing business, we, as we all know, is, is very high anyway, but I mean, we're looking mm. at a 38% labour cost for a lot of businesses at the minute, which is unsustainable. Right. Unemployment's at about 5.3%, isn't it? It is, yeah, and, and I mean, the, the, that's the, it's hard to understand why um, we're not getting them into the specifically into restaurants and hotels. But uh, that's that's where we're at. There's other opportunities out there to be, for people, and, and that's life. So mm. that's where we're at. Twenty percent must be making up the hospitality sector. <laughs> okay. Uh, do do you hear from people uh, who turn jobs down, job offers? Is it the terms, the conditions, the late nights, or what is it? Partly um, unsociable errors. I, I disagree mm. with that. I grew up in the industry. I love the social aspect of the job. Um, I've always been very passionate about the industry. I love my industry. Um, I, I, I think it's a great place to meet people, to meet your regular customers. I mean, we have a real good community kind of base up in, up in Scholars. So maybe it's not the same in the city centres. Mm. Um, you haven't got that community feel. But definitely in, in, in rural locations, I, I know that it's, it's a little bit different, you know. Yeah. It's, a very good, it's, a, it's a very good industry to be in. Um, we re- really recommend it. I mean, and the amount of people that come through in terms of en- entry level just yeah. coming into the workforce um, is, is big. But unfortunately, it's the, it's the people that have been in it for a long time seem to be moving on. Okay, and I'm still at a loss as to understand. I mean, I thought if you were unemployed uh, and you had to go to Entrio, uh, I'm not sure if I have all of this right, but in general terms, uh, I'm sure you'll understand the thrust of it, that you uh, would have to go for interviews and you could only turn down so many and so on. And if there are jobs there, if there's 40,000 vacancies, it's hard to figure how 5.3% of the population is unemployed. There's 40,000 um, vacancies in the tourism sector, but yeah. specifically mm. for restaurants, we could be looking at more like 20,000. And a lot of those jobs would be highly skilled jobs. It's not just a matter of walking in and, and not right. knowing the industry, you know? Yeah. So it's like a lot of like, like the chef jobs or sommeliers are, are, are short and there's very few of them around the place at the minute. Yeah. So we're actually putting wine courses through at the moment in the hotel and the, the skill nets are doing a great job in terms of trying to train up sommeliers and even baristas are, are short as well. So, mm. like, it's it's the skilled jobs that are the problem. Like, it's fine. There's plenty of CVs coming in and um, from people that aren't trained. But what we need is people that are able to get in and work and ready to go, really. So, it's okay. just training is a difficulty. And you lost these people who were filling these positions through the pandemic. Where did they go and why did they not come back? Well, I think they realised the time, like a lot of us had a lot of time off, like myself, I got to spend more time with family, I realised that earlier evenings, um, so what we're doing at the moment is trying to make it a better environment for people, we're trying to find ways to make that industry, this industry, a little bit more appealing, and uh, whether it be splitting up the day, or that they can go off for three hours in the afternoon and then Mm. come back in the evening, or more half-day shifts rather than long days. So we're doing everything we can to, to it's something that we realise. I suppose the pandemic gave us that um, sense of quality of life and work-life balance is what, something that all of our businesses are trying to strive towards now. Okay. So we realise that now and, and we're, that's the position we're in. Okay, well, there could be opportunities there for people coming to this country from Ukraine uh, because uh, many of uh, those people could have the skills uh, that you're looking for. Otherwise, you're asking that the government make it possible for people to come into the country. But speaking of people coming from Ukraine, uh, you're a hotelier, of course, uh, as well. 
uh, with uh, scholars uh, and indeed uh, the Hotels Federation were telling the committee yesterday that they're a bit concerned about the impact that the refugee crisis is going to have on tourism because the rooms will be filled with refugees. Yeah, I think it's going to, there'll definitely be a shortage of hotel rooms um, this summer, there's no doubt about that. First and foremost, we have to realise and understand that, you know, obviously the human tragedy is after happening over there, and we have to do all we can as an industry to try and facilitate these people and try and get them back on their feet. So we, we will do all we can, but it's not the, it's, it's, it's not a, a final solution for this. What we need is, is, um, more robust um, means of accommodation for these people when once they come in that we can facilitate them and, and, and get them into you know it's, it's not really a life if they have to come in and end up spending you know months on end in a, in a hotel no we, we've been in that situation with, with the homeless crisis in Ireland and, and, and that proved to not work out for us so what we need to do is find, find alternative means of accommodation that will give them a better quality of life when they do get here Okay the other effect of the war, of course, then is uh, the one that we're all given about uh, out about. The price of everything is going up, including energy costs and so on. Uh, and uh, there's all sorts of ways that's going to impact you. Your costs are going to go up, but I take it your business will go down if people have less money as well. Exactly. So it's like it's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, really. Like our own um, gas costs, as an example, have gone up 32% since December, which is like it's it's unsustainable at those levels so I don't know where we'll be at it's, it's kind of like we're heading into summer when it should be off peak but we're paying like winter rates at this stage which isn't good heading into the summer so the only thing is hopefully we'll, we'll have the heat and off during the summer maybe we might get away with that but look the, it is very energy costs are continuously rising and that's you can see it now with the supply chain obviously to to, from a logistics point of view to move uh, supply around the country is costing the supplier more money so in turn the prices go up and then you, you'll see that reflecting then on menus nationwide unfortunately I'd imagine that's the way it'll end up happening so um, that's where we're at everything is going yep. to get more expensive and I just don't know what the end game is now <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was March of 2020 I started uh, or first spoke to you on uh, the programme Mark uh, with yeah. uh, the onset of uh, the pandemic and uh, I don't know month by month over the last couple of years we've gone from one disaster to another <laughs> it just seems I'm to not. go from bad to worse or is that the way you feel about it? I, I feel like, like I'm actually finished on Monday my term as president of the Restaurant Association right. and like <laughs> I came in and then eight months later I hit a pandemic and now we're looking at you know a potential world war on the horizon so I, I, I kind of feel like uh, Trump handing the keys over to Biden nearly do you know at this stage but um, it's um, no it's been a very difficult and challenging couple of years but um, I'd like to say thanks to you Michael actually I've always enjoyed uh, speaking with you on the show and we were able to highlight a lot of issues over the last two or three years and um, it kind of helps with the lobbying effort, I suppose, at the Restaurants Association, because we had a very, very challenging time, mm. as you can imagine. And um, I think that, you know, everybody had a, a good and firm understanding. Like that Oireachtas Committee yesterday, yesterday, I felt they were very receptive and understanding of the needs for the hospitality industry and, and its place at the moment and where it is. Yeah, challenging times. Mark, thank you indeed, as is always. Uh, and uh, thanks uh, for uh, the time you've spent over the last couple of years as uh, the president, outgoing president of uh, the Restaurants Association now. And thank you, as I say, for joining us. Uh, that's Mark McGowan of Scholars Townhouse Hotel and Peggy Moore's Pub in Drogheda. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, if you're looking for somewhere to rent and you're on HAP, it looks like you're going to find it very difficult to find somewhere to rent. Uh, according to the Simon community, there's 80 properties available to rent for HAP tenants at the moment, 
across 16 areas in Athlone, Cork, Dublin, Dundalk, Galway, Kildare, Sligo, Portleash, Leitrim and Waterford. Just 80 properties across 16 areas. And worse still if you're a single person because across the 16 areas there's just one property uh, that will qualify uh, if you are a HAP recipient. Now that's out of a total of 737 properties that are available to rent across the 16 areas. And by the way, that number of 80 compares to 906 properties six months ago. It's a 92% drop. Why is that the case, you may ask? Well, you'd have heard on LMFM's news a little bit earlier on, Sinn Féin's Kevin Meenan uh, telling uh, the Dundalk Municipal District that uh, the inspections, uh, or I suppose the standards that are being inspected, are part of the problem. Kevin Meenan is on the line. A very good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Just 80 of the 737 properties are available to HAP tenants. Why is that? Is it to do with how much uh, people can get through HAP? Morning, Michael. Uh, I, I raised this as an issue on, uh, on the back of concerns I had dealing with people coming into our office uh, in regards to looking for hot properties and then talking to letting agencies. Uh, one of the things that was flagged up, among other things, was uh, stringent tests that were carried out in terms of the local authority assessing houses how they fit for HAP. Mm. And uh, they were quite severe in some cases. Now, I'm not advocating that. Obviously, that's a good system to have and you have to be inspecting properties. And I've seen some dreadful properties in my time that have been uh, asked, uh, been looking for crazy money for, for rent. But the same token too, I think there has to be some type of maybe hard, uh, middle ground here. Mm. A lot of people, landlords who are possibly, say, accidental landlords, inherit a house. They go to put it through the system, HAP, and then they're faced with a multitude of different things that they have to do to get the house ready for HAP. Okay. Uh, same, at the same token on that, we also have, this is coming from the local authority, you have a double standard there because the local authority, their house, many of their houses, and I've pointed this out in the past, would not pass the stringent HAP. In fact, they would fail dismally. Yeah. So, Just back up a, a little yeah. bit, though, because um, the point I was uh, making a moment ago is there's 737 properties available to rent across the 16 areas, uh, and just 80 of them are available to HAP tenants. Is it that 650 of them are too expensive, if you like, that the HAP doesn't pay enough for people to uh, be able to uh, afford most of uh, the properties that are available to rent? Yeah, yeah, that's that's another issue. The HAP, the HAP uh, payments have to be updated to come in line with the properties that are the, the prices that people are looking for at the moment. And because there's so few properties, that allows the market then to be driven up as right. well. Okay. So, so that, that's an issue. For example, and, and you'd imagine that one of the reasons that these properties are, are, are as expensive as they are uh, is because the landlord had to invest in them, uh, probably to bring them up to HAP standards. Yeah, and in some cases they're spending 10000 15,000. Uh, for one example, rewiring of a house, somebody had said there, a landlord had to spend upwards of 12 grand to, re, to rewire a house. He's not going to do it. Mm. He will probably look for somewhere else to, to somebody else to rent away from HAP. Like he could get, say, for example, a number of professionals in there from a teaching background or from one of the bigger factories or something like mm. that. They will come in there and they will live there. But you're not allowed to discriminate uh, no, in, in that can, sense. But they, but, it's but just you make it unaffordable do. for HAP tenants. Yeah, yeah, that's that. And they can, they can afford, they can, they can look then to take on somebody else. It's up to their choice. So if they, I would imagine if they, if, if they, they look to take somebody else, they'll see it as less hassle. 
mm. and not have to go through that. And, and in case of the rewiring, like as I said, to rewire our house, there's also periodic gas inspections mm. or boiler inspections. The council doesn't do any of these things. No. And, they, and we have flagged this up as well. So there has to be some uniformity here. So we can't just have double standards for, for one and not for the other. Well, it's and, it's and, understating and it, calling it double standards, because, uh, I mean, you're talking uh, about standards. Uh, if you're to qualify for HAP payments, that mean that you've almost state-of-the-art housing uh, relative to the squalor that the councils will allow people to live in. That's uh, I, I spent some time in houses even there recently in the last few, few days that you wouldn't actually allow anyone to live in. Never mind you'd condemn it there and then and say you cannot live like this. So, uh, I, and as I say, go back to the rewiring. We have houses there that they're they were built 40, 50 years ago and I know one girl who had to get the fuse box changed because they don't sell them fuses anymore. Like These these, these are prehistoric and uh, I, I imagine if the council were told they have to rewire 35 houses, say for example, down uh, a part of Havnemore or Cox's or some of the older mm. states to a cost a fortune and, and again, but we're losing properties uh, due to that, and, and also the fact again the the, the, the high prices and we have so yeah. few properties available it's driving it up and we have a huge amount of people uh, like other councillors I'd imagine too who are dealing with people on a daily basis who cannot find them have properties It's ridiculous isn't it? Oh, it, it is and, and, and some of these are really really mm. uh, heartbreaking stories where people have to move out or in one case we were lucky enough to get a couple with, with a, ch- a child into a house but the, the landlord's cell he's moving on and uh, but we will really struggle to try and find them somewhere else to stay and uh, the price will go shooting through the roof and it's getting worse and I think we have to look and that's why I raised at the council meeting we need a solution to this and I don't have all the solutions but mm. I raise as an issue that we nearly we, we either maybe the council sit down with the letting agencies and try and work together on a collective basis with them to see what they can do and what they can improve their end to allow landlords to stay in the system to offer HAP so that people aren't left in dire situations and many of them are running up to, against the clock where they have to be out by a certain date. So, and that's pressure on everybody, on, on, on the families themselves, on the officials that we put pressure on to try and find them somewhere else to stay. It's, it's untenable at the moment and it's getting worse. Mm. Are some of uh, the standards over the top, do you think? I would say they are. I, for example, my house probably wouldn't pass a half inspection well, I feel relatively safe in my house, hmm. Joe, and, and I would say it would fail. And, and in fact, an official has told me in the past when I raised this before that his house would probably fail as well. And, and I think we have to address that if it's reasonable enough. Well, have you have you got a fire blanket in your house? No, I haven't. No, well, you no, failed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 and and yeah, and there's probably numerous other things I'm yeah. afraid to actually look <laughs> to look, uh, Michael. But I would, I would say we would fail. I would, and then I spoke to a few other people that posed that question to them. And they'd say, yeah, I would. I, my house would probably fail too. My yeah. house would fail. So you, you hear people talk about perfectly good windows needing to be replaced because yeah. of the HAP standards, or painting of a house, or carpet in a house. The councils, the council don't provide a shower in a house. And then the relets that they take back when they do a house that has been relet before, and they take it back in the system. They go out to the basic standard, not even standard. In fact, I would I would query what they go back out as. But again, that's that's subject to the funding that they have. But they they don't carpet the house. They don't put showers in. They don't do regular gas inspections. They haven't done in years, and yet these people have to pay for uh, electric uh, or constantly uh, or constant. Uh, 
boiler uh, boiler maintenance and, and all of this. The council doesn't do any of them things. So it's it's a it's, it's not, there's a huge discrepancy in what and what the state uh, what the local authority does in this council housing and what it does in the private rental market. And it can't go on the way it is at the moment. Mm. Um, where do people wash themselves? Yeah, as I say, we we've raised this with 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 with, with showers and uh, and the baths. So the, the, in many cases, that they have to hand the house back out. It's, it's bath only. If there happened to be a shower installed from the previous tenant, they will keep that there. But uh, but, but otherwise, they don't. And I raised that at the last council meeting. Uh, that like there's basic stuff there. But but if you apply the same law in terms of of what we look for in the HAP inspection and what we look for in the council inspections. I would say most of the council houses, I would say over 50% would fail HAP inspections. And that's just mm. a rough guess. And it could be higher, way higher than that. Well, if you don't have a microwave, you've failed. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't yeah, use yeah. A lot of people don't use microwaves. They don't, yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't use them. What's that to do with housing yeah. standards? Yeah, yeah. As I say, we 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 need to sit down and, mm. and look at these. And uh, as I say, I don't have all the answers. Mm. But I think if, you, if you have a smoke alarm, if you have a smoke alarm uh, in a house, you might fail the HAP inspection because it, it mightn't be one of those smoke alarms that has batteries that last for fifteen years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there, there's a, there are huge amount of, and, and I don't know if the people who are doing the inspections have seen their own council stock as well or, or live the gap but as I say it, it, it has to be in terms of and I just looked at it from my own point of view mine ours would fail but you, we, we, I can live quite happily in my house feel relatively safe in my house and you will always upgrade your house as you go along mm. you know, incrementally as, as through the years but if somebody landed in now and insurance companies say that we have to you have to do X, Y it costs and, and all mm. the, these costs are going up all the time due to the current climate with the, the way the world is at the moment. And the house next door uh, maybe a council house and the roof falling off but that's okay. Yeah. yeah and no uh, microwave, I, no fire I, blanket, I, I, no shower. No, no shower or, or the gas boiler, the boiler hadn't been serviced in yeah. years. Danger. Yeah, so, so like that, that, this all has to be addressed and uh, it can't go on the way it's going but my, my biggest fear at the moment is for the tenants uh, for the people that we have coming in here on a daily basis who are struggling to find somewhere to rent you find someone mm. and the landlord takes them on to get the HAP inspection and say do you know what no off the hassle he will then walk away from it or prepare up for sale or re-rent it back out mm. try and re-rent it through a back door way to make before people walking in the factory and they'll be taken off the HAP market well just to reiterate, according to yeah, this no. report from the Simon communities, there's been a 92% drop in the number of properties available to HAP tenants across these 16 areas. Athlone, Cork, Dublin, Dundalk, Galway, Kildare, Leitrim, Sligo, Portleash and Waterford. Uh, and some of those places like Dublin would be three or four areas just uh, to make the point that it is 16 areas across those places. Just 80 properties are available and just one available if it's a single person who's looking to rent through HAP. And I, and I would say, Michael, a lot of that is now, you could pinpoint that due to COVID, and, or that COVID is gone now, so inspections are allowed to take place. So since inspections have, a be, have been allowed to take place, so people can go into somebody's house, since that, that's where you have started to see the drop down. Mm. That's where you have seen HAP inspections kicking in mm. and, and really putting a boot into the market. And the other side of it is that whilst there's only 80 properties available across the 16 areas, there's another 650 properties for rent, but HAP won't pay enough. 
Yeah, you don't pay enough. Say, for example, if you're a single person coming in here looking to go in, you'd nearly cry for them. Say, like, there's literally no hope. So at the moment, you can get very, very lucky. You could just be really lucky, but you'd have to be uh, on the ball and literally ringing agencies every morning and every mm. afternoon because as soon as one comes in, it's gone. Yeah, but it really is a case of wanting your or getting your cake and eating it uh, because they, they want everything, but they don't seem to be willing to pay for it. That, that's as I say, and, and these have, uh, they haven't been updated in, in a long time. And if you talk to the homeless section or in any local authority, they'll tell you uh, across the, across the state that the HAP rates are way of late. They're, they're, as I said, they're, they're not realistic. Okay. And, and HAP, none of this is a perfect solution. Obviously, you, you would have wanted local authority houses to be building for no. years and all of this, but, but that's not there. We can only deal with, with, with reality at the moment and what's there. Mm, yeah, somewhere in the middle, uh, perhaps uh, uh, standards coming down slightly, like whether it's microwave waves and fire blankets yeah. in, in, in the private houses, uh, and maybe uh, fixing the windows and servicing the boilers in the council houses. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll take I'll take that if we get that, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. So. Okay. So. All right, Kevin. Thank you indeed for joining no us as you. always, Kevin Mean and Sinn Fein councillor on Louth County Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Just in relation to our last item, somebody texting us uh, saying, Michael, it's madness. I've seen so many council authorities ripping apart perfectly good houses before others move in. Once a house is livable, give it out and people will sort it out bit by bit themselves. Thanks indeed for that. I, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. I think before a house is given to a new tenant, the council will have to paint it, regardless of whether it needs painting or not. And I think that's the kind of thing that our, our texture is talking about. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that thought with us. That's why a lot of houses will lie idle for six months or a year and nothing wrong with them. Uh, others will have, uh, obviously need a, a lot of work. Betty Daly, thanks for your text as well. She says, Michael, about the shortage of workers in hospitality and in nursing homes, for that matter, why don't they allow able-bodied pensioners to go back to work until the situation gets back to normal? Thanks, uh, Betty, for that. I'm sure uh, they'd be very welcome in some sectors uh, for that matter, Betty, but thank you, as I say, uh, for your text to the programme. Call to us uh, from Pat, who's in Carrick-Macross, and thanks uh, for taking the time to ring us uh, today, Pat. He, He says, a lot of young people won't work in the hotel sector, and the reason for that is the low wages, he says. Well... That may be part of it, uh, Pat. He says uh, they're, fini- they're they're rushed off uh, their feet, and, and for what? The minimum wage. Uh, who'd expect people to work like that, uh, Pat wonders. Uh, and he goes on to say uh, that in some restaurants, I've heard of the owners keeping all of the tips. This would put anybody off working there. I'm sure there's uh, some truth in that, and we've heard a lot of complaints uh, along those lines uh, over a long period of time, it has to be said. Uh, but at the same time, you'd wonder, like, do people want to work or, or not? I mean, two wrongs don't make a right, and perhaps that should be dealt with. Uh, but if people are unemployed and doing nothing and can earn more and get a bit of self-esteem through their work, uh, maybe they should think about working in restaurants. I don't know. But uh, thanks uh, for your call anyway, Pat. Siobhan in Dundalk, thanks uh, for ringing us as well today. Siobhan says, how are people going to manage financially with the cost of everything going up the way it is? I know climate is important, but right now, all I'm concerned about is being able to heat my home and feed my children. My husband needs to commute to work and we're extremely worried about the cost of petrol. 
Uh, another call to us, uh, it was an email actually from Barry who says, I heard Peter P- Fitzpatrick in, in the doll a little bit earlier on. Uh, we played out that on the programme, making the point about Irish people taking in people from Ukraine without getting any funding or support from the state. Uh, Barry says, just to mention the hauliers that took it upon themselves to get aid to Ukraine with no funding from government, boats and fuel was never as expensive. And yet all the aid that has gone from Ireland, I myself am a small haulier from Kells and we even got a full 45 foot trailer load together and got it to the Ukraine. Well, well done to you, Barry. Well done indeed. And thank you indeed uh, for sharing that thought with us. We have all seen the atrocities uh, that have been committed in Buja and uh, uh, other places in Ukraine. Uh, this reveals the true nature of uh, President Putin's war. Uh, any targeting and killing of uh, civilians uh, is a war crime and uh, therefore NATO uh, allies uh, are supporting the international efforts to establish all the facts, uh, to investigate and uh, to make sure that uh, uh, perpetrators are uh, punished. Um, we are now in the critical phase uh, of the war. We see that Russia, are, uh, Russia is moving forces out of uh, the north uh, to reinforce uh, them, to resupply them, to rearm them, and then to move them into the east, where we uh, are expecting uh, a major uh, offensive. Uh, President Putin's aim is to try to uh, control the whole of uh, Donbass uh, and to establish a land bridge between Donbass and uh, and uh, 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 and the Russia. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we uh, we have seen no indication that uh, President Putin has uh, changed his ambition to control uh, the whole of Ukraine uh, and also to rewrite uh, the international order. So we need to be prepared for a long uh, haul. We need to support Ukraine, sustain our sanctions, and strengthen our uh, defenses and uh, our deterrence. Uh, because this can last for a long time, and we need to be prepared for that. Mm. Dreadful, isn't it? We need to be prepared for the long haul. It's going to last some time. That's the word from NATO, uh, the General Secretary there, Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, Thanks to John McEnany, uh, who sent me a message on Facebook saying, Michael, it's so sad to see Ukrainian people suffer so much. We have holiday homes and caravan parks all over Ireland that would be a lot better than tents. The government should look into using them to house a, a lot of people who are suffering from this evil. Only seven weeks ago, Butcher was a friendly and quiet suburb on the outskirts of Kiev. But last week, humanity itself was killed in Butcher. It was killed in cold blood, executed with its hands tied and a bullet in the head. It was left to rot in the middle of the street or in mass graves. We have all seen the haunting images of Butcher. And we've heard the testimonies of those who speak freely again now that the Russian army has left. They shot everyone they saw, one witness said about Putin's soldiers. This, honorable members, is what is happening when Putin's soldiers occupy Ukraine territory. They call it liberation. No, we call it war crimes. And we really have to give it this name. 
EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen finishes our programme today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 